You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jose Valim, the creator of the Elixir programming language. We talk about a project he's been working on to introduce static types to Elixir, and get into more details about trade-offs in different type-checking strategies, from set-theoretic types to subtyping, flow-typing, type unification, and more. We also talk about how very easily we both become confused when trying to understand papers about these topics. Software Inscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, static types in Elixir. All right, Jose, so happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Uh, glad to be here. Okay, so I recently watched your keynote about 10 years of Elixir. Congrats, by the way, t- making it 10 Thank years you. and having a widely used language is rare and something I personally aspire to someday. <laughs> And so one of the things you mentioned in that talk was uh, you called it uh, the elephant in the room of like static typing. And you talked about like this sort of experiment that you're planning on like working through with some researchers to introduce like set theoretic types to Elixir. Very cool stuff. One thing that I was kind of wondering is that phrase like elephant in the room, that kind of suggested to me that this is something that like a lot of people in the Elixir community have been talking about. And I'm kind of curious to know more about that because it seems like I've been noticing this trend of in the past, like, I don't know, five years, Maybe this is has something to do with like TypeScript's popularity, but there seems to be a lot of languages that have always been dynamically typed, and then all of a sudden, very recently, at like very similar times, this topic of let's add static types to them seems to be getting a lot more traction than it used to, I don't know, like 10 plus years ago. What do you think about that? What is your sense of that? Yeah, so to give a bit more context, the elephant in the room is exactly that So when you get 10 years in a programming language, it means you hear a lot of complaints throughout the years. (laughs) No doubt. We have been actually really, I think, I hope, we have been really good at tackling those complaints. Like the first I can remember was the code formatter. As more teams, they were, we started to have more teams and larger teams. We're actually feeling this pain like in Elixir as language itself, like Style guides, they started to pop up and this kind of stuff. And I think like because of languages like Go and Elm, people were actually really have like pleasant experiences with uh, code formatters. And then there was like a push for the community for us to standardize. And then so we tackled that. We added that as part of the language. And then later there was a lot of questions related to deployment and how we could improve the deployment. Mm. And then we work on that. We streamline the whole deployment experience uh, as part of the language as well. And all of those, like, there were already ideas in the community exploring, like, uh, deployment, code formatting. So we brought those ideas in. So we, we, we've worked with the de- developers here and there. And then now if you go to an Elixir conference and you ask, like, or if you, you do a survey, you go to the forum, whatever, I ask in the in the next, in the last, before this one, the one last year, what people wanted the most. And it's like, it's types, static types, some form of like more static type checking. I see. It's going to be the, it's going to be the, the answer, it's going to be the answer of the majority of people saying, hey, we want something like that. Right. So that's the elephant in the room because I feel like if I'm going to talk about like, well, my future with Elixir, which was the, the topic of the talk, and I don't mention the thing that everybody kind of wants more of that to happen, right? Uh-huh. Then it's like, maybe I'll leave a lot of people disappointed, right? And uh, yeah. and that's something that I have been thinking about it for quite some time. So it's also worth like bringing the historical perspective in that Elixir runs on top of the Erlang virtual machine. And it's very similar semantically to Erlang. Like the only feature that we have, like in addition, that would affect a type system in Elixir, in addition to Erlang, is our protocols, which are like closure protocols, Haskell type classes, Go interfaces, right? That's the only thing. But like in terms of typing, everything will be kind of the same. And like people have tried to add typing to Erlang, right? Mm-hmm. Like Philip Wadler tried a long time ago. I didn't know that. Interesting. It's always something that there's also the thing that something that always comes up when we talk about typing is that there is, let's say, like the sequential Elixir, sequential Erlang, which is like just work with functions, data structures, but there's like the concurrent distributed Erlang, which is something that is 
actively like being researched with session types, multi-session types, and all this kind of stuff. So, and this has kind of served as a cop-out like throughout the years. How are you going to type Erlang? And then it's like, well, nobody knows how to type processes like well. So we don't. Yeah, you, you mentioned in the talk like explicitly like, hey, we're not, this is not trying to type messages. Like that's out of scope. And, you know, we're just talking about typing the other things, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and there are like interesting projects. Like I think it's Haskell, Haskeller, which is like a Haskell-inspired language that compiles to Erlang. So there are like a bunch of very interesting initiatives happening like there is like caramel, caramel or something. There are like a lot of languages that compile to Erlang and bring a type system. There is Gleam. Yeah, Gleam is the one that comes to mind for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think Gleam is probably the most popular one of the typed ones. I'm not sure, but uh, that, that would be my gut feeling. So yeah. there, there's a lot of interesting things. So the thing about processes, for example, one of the reasons I'm not particularly interested in necessarily like typing processes is because people warily send the messages to processes directly. You usually have an abstraction where like, look, I'm going to create a new process and you have like a module around that process with certain behavior and certain logic that is encapsulated. So like the Haskell project, the Haskell plus Erlang project, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> they solve this using something like type classes, which I found was very interesting. And I may be completely wrong here, but I think like the way that Gleam does it is that they solve it at the process level, but they are implementing like the, because Erlang, we have the Erlang language and then we have like Erlang OTP, which is really like the Erlang standard library. And that's the thing that has like supervisors, gen servers, a lot of things like to build, like the fault tolerance systems that Erlang is famous for. And I think Glean is typing the processes, but they are like starting the foundation from scratch. So everything is built on top of processes and typed where we are like, we want to use the existing foundation. So how we are going to add types on top of that. So anyway, like that's like, that's, that's <laughs> the thing that I'm like, look, there are too many options, too many things and too many unknowns. And if we start on that, right, that's exactly the point. If we start with that, I don't think anything is going to happen. But if we think only about like the sequential elixir and sequential Erlang kind of thing, there's probably something that we can add and we can get benefits from it uh, just by taking care of that part. And that's why I say like it's probably it has to be a gradual type system because when you get a message, that message is dynamic, right? You don't know what it is. And I think like yeah. Akka, for example, did that in Scala for a really long period of time, right? It was just like dynamic or unit or something like that, where you couldn't really know what that message was. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, it's almost like, I mean, you, you could think of it as something along the lines of like JSON, where it's like, it's just this opaque thing that's coming in. It's just data yeah. that's coming in from the network. And who knows what shape it has, you have to look at it and figure out and like parse it to some extent. And as a convenience, like Erlang doesn't make you actually parse literally json or something like that but at the end of the day at runtime that it, that has to be what's going on is there's some data coming in there's bytes coming in and then the runtime or, or somebody has to parse them and like figure out what the shape is and yeah there's a lot of different ways to do that but it, it makes sense that like the ergonomics that people are used to is okay i i just i just write this using ordinary erlang or elixir data structures and you know it just works and so you'd want to try to preserve that it makes sense yeah and then in the talk like a good part of the talk was exactly trying to distill what we can gain from a type system. And then if I said anything absurd, I would actually love to hear your, your feedback because <laughs> you're definitely more experienced than me because one of the things that we I hear a lot in these discussions is that people are like, well, you know, when I have types, I don't need to write tests. And then I'm like, hmm, oh, no. oh, I'm no. not sure, right? <laughs> and, and I really uh, want to talk about those things because like if we had a type system, let's say that in five years, Elixir has a type system. I don't want yeah. anybody to say, oh, I have types, therefore I don't need to write tests. So I, I pick up like examples, like, well, if I implement like the end Boolean operator, right? And if I just say like, it's Boolean to Boolean and I don't write a test, I can break that completely. Right. And the, 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 the types would never get it. And we also hear like the opposite people say like, hey, if I have 100% coverage, I don't need a type system, which is something that 
I've tried to prove that's not the case. Like depending on the type system, right. your code coverage is actually not going to guarantee you. So it was really like trying to make sense, like, hey, what we can get from this. And then there are other things that are more obvious, like types as documentations, it's really good. Types as sure. performance, it's not something that I believe we would benefit from because we are running on a, on the VM where everything is of course, yeah. Anyway. So that was the part that I think like really tried to get everybody on the community on the same page, like why we may want this and why we may not want this. And I think like the most controversial is that if type systems, they, I don't remember exactly what, what was the part, but it's like if type systems, they, they help you avoid bugs or something like that. And for me, the answer is like, it's really going to depend on the type system, right? Like the Rust one is definitely going to catch a, some category of bugs, but we have to talk exactly <laughs> right. about the bugs that it catches because otherwise you're just like, you're going to have a, a belief on something that is not doing what you think. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of good points there. So first of all, when I was watching the talk, I remember you had a slide where you showed like, here are some benefits that people, that you've heard people say, you know, static typing might bring and you listed them all out. And I remember the first one was performance. And I remember my immediate reaction was like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's like, you can get performance out of static types, but it's only if you use them for code generation instead of, for example, like going on a VM or like interpreting bytecode or something like that, which is something that we do in Rock. Like we definitely use static types for performance, but you can't retrofit that after the fact if you've already got a VM. Like it's just, you know, in order for types to help with performance, they have to change what the compiler is outputting. And I mean, they, they could potentially be used for like analysis that would help uh, an optimizer out, for example, and say like, oh, I've realized that, you know, we can actually sneakily do this different runtime representation here or something like that. But that, as I understand it, is like the gains you can get from that are like pretty minor if you're already like on a VM. So yeah, I don't think it would be reasonable to expect significant performance wins there. The types like quote unquote versus tests thing, I, I, I am also frustrated by that. It seems extremely obvious that like, I always want tests. Like no matter whether I have types or not, of course I want tests. And the really obvious example of this is like, how much do types help you out if you write a conditional? They don't, they don't do that. <laughs> That's not a thing that types do. Like you can just, for example, flip the order of your conditionals and make the, what should be happening in the if branch happen in the else branch and vice versa. They have the same type. All of the types are 100% the same. So types cannot possibly help you with that. You have to like use some other way to make sure that your code is giving the outputs that you expect if you have any conditionals in your code, which is to say that's like all code <laughs> is that way. So like, of course, I, I want tests. And then I also am frustrated by the idea of like, oh, if you have 100%, like I, I have 100% test coverage, therefore I don't quote unquote need types. It's like, well, I mean, nobody needs types. The question is just like, are the costs worth the benefits that I get or, or are the benefits worth the cost that I get from types? And to me, like at least in the statically typed languages that I enjoy, I feel that I get a lot of benefit out of them from the perspective of there's a bunch of tests that I don't need to write and, and honestly probably wouldn't write anyway. And yet all of those problems or potential bugs are covered anyway by the type checker. It's just like, it's a tool that helps me out. So I think the like I find some some of the like tribalism around these things like frustrating. I find it both frustrating that like you know at face value it's it's pretty easy to say like to oversimplify and say like oh why wouldn't I want one more tool in my toolbox like a, like a type checker of course like uh, yes please I would like extra help with that but then I also am cognizant of the fact that like there are downsides to that it's not like it's just a free lunch where it's just like oh you add this extra tool and now everything's fine like for one thing your build times go up. They get strictly higher because like the type checker has to like do work to check the types. And then like you have to wait for it to do that to give you an answer. So there's absolutely downsides to introducing static types. But it, it often feels like the discussions get into these very false dichotomy territories where it's like, oh, you either have types or you have tests or and yeah, I, don't, I just don't think those things are productive. Like it, it's it's much more, like you said, useful to talk about specifics. And like, here are the specific things that we would get in Elixir. And here are the specific, you know, costs that, that we would expect. Like, one of the questions that I would have, uh, you mentioned like, like the set theoretic types. And oh, I should, I should look this up. 
uh, I, I forget what the name is. There's a, there's a technique that you can use for type inference for these type of like uh, arbitrary subtyping. And I don't remember what the name of it is, but I'm going to see if I can look it up while we're talking. Uh, but, but basically, like the performance can vary pretty dramatically depending on whether you are or are not using certain like type inference techniques for that type of thing. Yeah, so I, I actually have like some thoughts on this. Before moving forward, there is just one thing that when I was like preparing the talk, one thing that I found very interesting about code coverage, which was that cold coverage, 100% cold coverage, eliminates the need for a type system only if you have a type system that restricts the kind of code that you can write. And that was one of the points that I found really interesting. Because, for example, if you have something that, if you have like an if that can return, like if you have an if and different branches can return different types, like if you have a type system that is going to say, look, they always have to return the same type, then the type system will basically help you remove the chance of any kind of runtime dispatch if the type system is restricting you. Like, oh, I have different yeah. types, so now I have to dispatch on different things. The type system restricts that in a way that, sure, if you have 100% coverage, then you don't need a type system, but you do need a type system in the first place <laughs> to make sure that it's like it's not letting you, you write crazy code that is doing runtime dispatching. So yeah, so that I think was like one of the really interesting points, which I think for me, my opinion, it kind of like proves that, look, you need to informally proves that the code coverage is never really going to replace a type system. So regarding the costs, right, there are a bunch of trade-offs that we can make. And one of the things, so then after we discuss, like in the talk, I talk about like, look, this is potential what we can get from types. One of the things that I talk about is also like types as restrictions. Sometimes the goal of the type system is to restrict the kind of code you can write. Sometimes for like, look, this is our philosophy of the language. Right. Sometimes it's because we need to restrict because that's how we guarantee certain performance, but it is restricting absolutely the type of code. And one of the things that makes it hard is because, like, if you're adding a type system to Erlang and Elixir, you most likely don't want to restrict the kind of code that you can write. Right. Like, we want to maybe there is a 1%, 2% that would be acceptable in deprecating and making trade offs, but like, generally, we can't. And that's something that you have to, you, you put it in there and you have to consider as part of your trade-offs. And for example, like, yeah, if you're going to do type inference in a language like that. So uh, my understanding, I may be misquoting things, misrepresenting things here, but my understanding is that the satiratic types theory, you can do inference, but not if there is like any parametric polymorphism. So when it gets to that point, it's just like, it can't do it well. It can't do it efficiently. It's still like being studied. I don't think it has. It was not proven that proven it was not possible. It's just like nobody knows how to do it yet, or nobody knows if it can't be done. But the thing for me is that I'm not worried about type inference. It's not the first thing that comes to my mind because look, if you want like if you if you want like the benefit of not having to write the types, like you can just write Elixir as it is today. Right. True. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not saying it's useless. If we could have it, it would be great. But in the scale of the trade-offs kind of things, I am fine with saying, look, uh, it's not, it's not the thing that is on my mind and I'm going to, and I'm going to worry about this later. And the other thing is that, that I think kind of help alleviates the need for like full blown inference is that I like to say that Elixir code is assertive because we we are pattern matching, right? So I know, look, I'm expecting this structure. I'm expecting a list. I'm expecting a map. Sometimes I'm not saying what is inside the list, but I, I'm saying, look, I'm expecting a listing here or this structure. And then we have guards where you can add even more information about what you are pattern matching on. So to me, it's like, if we can leverage the information that we already have in the code that we write today, We'll help people and we'll catch bugs. So I would rather focus on leveraging that instead of having a full-blown inference mechanism. And that's exactly where we are starting. So I'm working with, well, I'm really not working. There are two other people working that uh, who are not me, which is Giuseppe Castanha. He's the senior professor that he's like, he's researching and investigating uh, set types as part of his research for years. And then we have 
Guillaume Dubois, who, who, who is the PhD student, and they are the one working on it. And like the first three months, four months of the project was mostly like looking at the Elixir patterns, looking at the Elixir guards, and it's like how this, what are the typing rules for this thing? Why this thing? How this is going to translate to to types, and how we are going to type this? And that was the right. So there was a lot of effort in that. And my goal is that well, because if we can start leveraging this. If we can start leveraging the information that is already in the Elixir code, we can start emit warnings. Like we can implement the type system behind the scenes. We can start emit warnings, and you don't have to change a single line of your code to already start getting benefits from it. And that's kind of where I want to go. Like slowly in this, in this, in in, in this, in this direction. So that's the plan. And then, and that that takes like inference off my mind. Like this is a three years project. And I would be fine if at the end of the three years, we don't work in France. And then if we are happy with what we get, then maybe there is another PhD student who is going to work on implementing inference. So you can say, infer those things for me or something like that. I see. So you're not thinking of like adding, for example, a syntax for type annotations to Elixir. It's more just like behind the scenes. We'll definitely have a syntax. Okay. But that's... For me, like that's part three. So right now, in my mind, in the roadmap is get all the information for pattern matching in guards. And in Elixir, we have those structs, which are which basically, you know, it's a a key value thing, right? And those things they are not typed. So first, I want to type the structs because I usually know what the structs I'm working with in different parts of the system. So if I can type them. I can propagate more type information. So my goal, it's like, it's to try to, I'm working on the smallest changes to the language that can, I'm on the low hanging fruits that can bring benefits to user. And when we are comfortable, we are going to say, here's the typing language. Because like adding the typing language to the language, it's going to be a really big change. And also it's like, there is a chance we are going to get like some things wrong. Right? And they're like, oh, the semantics are wrong. And now we have to change the type language again. And because those things, they go side by side. So like as much as we can postpone adding the type language and still give benefits to users, for me, that's my plan. I, we will see if it will actually become true. Because sure. the other thing that I'm talking a lot with the professor and the student as well is that I want a gradual, gradual type system. Because I want a gradual type system that I can implement gradually. Because, you know, like the meme, which is like how to draw an owl. And then there's like right, some right, sketches. Right, yeah. and like, like, so like implementing a type system feels like that, right? It feels like there is no way or you have or you don't. And I'm really hoping that we can find a way where it's like, look, we just started working on it. And there are dynamics going all around, right, in the type system. But we can like slowly, it can still be sound. Like I could go and type all Elixir code today and say all the inputs are dynamic, all the outputs are dynamic, <laughs> and that would be good, sure. right? So like going this idea, I want to like slowly refine it and bring benefits to users without having to, you know, like spend months or years of working getting this right. And it's like, hey, here is what it is. Yeah, I, I think that approach seems to be, it seems to line up well with like what's been successful with like dynamic languages that have introduced gradual typing is like, yeah, doing it in a way that is like unobtrusive. And yeah, I guess ideally gradual. My, I don't know if, if like worry is the right word here, but like something that I always like think about here is what's the performance like? Because one of the things that I remember from like the early days of JavaScript, and this is like, a, this is a tangent about JavaScript, but I have like fond memories of like the jQuery era of JavaScript. I don't know if you were like doing web programming with jQuery back in the day. But like one of the things that I remember was that the feedback loop was always instantaneous because there was no build step. There was no like we weren't we weren't doing like Babel or ES anything. It was just like you just had your .js file and like notepad or whatever. And then you just hit save and you go over to the browser and hit refresh and it was just getting loaded straight off the disk. And over time, we got more and more tools that had a bunch of upsides, but they all had the downside of now there's a build step that takes longer and longer. And eventually it got to a point where even when we didn't have any static type checking at all, just because of all the build machinery that was going on with Webpack and Browserify and all these things, 
that f- instant feedback loop was just gone. It just wasn't instant anymore. And so I've always been kind of like, ever since sort of like, I don't know, realizing that and realizing like why I felt nostalgia for the old days, I've been more and more conscious of the like longer build times drawback of things. So the reason I bring this up in the context of types is that I had a conversation with Ayaz Hafiz, who's one of the people who knows way more than me about types <laughs> who works on rock. And uh, and I was actually talking about, I, I wasn't using the term set theoretic types, but in general, I guess the idea of like, what if we had more of a like gradual typing flavor? This is kind of like an exploration of an idea. It ends up not making sense for a couple of reasons, but for rock at least. But but we were talking about things like, what if you had union types like, you know, string or int, as opposed to like, you know, in Haskell and Elm and rock, if you wanted to represent something that could be either a string or an int, you'd actually wrap that in like, we, we call it a tag union in rock, but or Haskell calls it algebraic data types. But one of those like, you, you have to wrap it is the point. And if you want to have the like, no wrapping, which is like, obviously, to me, a, a much better fit for a language that started out as dynamic, because you can just do that. You can always pass a function, either a string or an int. So like, if you're going to add types to that, then you need to be able to model that. So what he was saying is that, and I looked this up in my old conversation with him, and I found the term, and it's binary decision trees are apparently a way that, yeah, okay. So that's apparently how you can do that type inference quickly. And so what he was saying is you can get apparently principled decidable type inference. And I think it's very safe to assume, even though you know I'm not like texting him right now to confirm this, but based on our conversation, since it was about rock, which has parametric polymorphism, I would assume there's a way to do that with parametric polymorphism as well. But there are other considerations there. Like, for example, let's say that you're pattern matching on something and you want it to sort of like refine the type where like like the example you gave was like you're pattern matching on something and it's like, oh, this is a list. We can tell that it's a list from the pattern match. And like you want the, the type checker to be aware of that. Doing like type refinement where the type gets more specific as you like pattern match or, or do like conditionals on it. Like the, an example from like TypeScript, for example, would be like if X is equal to null or not equal to null. Then it's like, oh, okay, well, now based on this, we know that before this conditional, it was nullable because I was comparing it to null. So that means that it could be null. And then also inside one branch of this conditional, it's not only nullable, but in fact, we know it's null. And in the other branch, we know that it can't be null. So we want to refine that type to be no longer nullable. And so that, as I understand it, is called uh, flow typing. So this is not something that we do in Rock, but it also seems like a pretty good fit for like gradual typing. Yeah. So there are some terms that people use, and I and I don't know. So we talk about this as occurrence typing. Okay. And I don't know if they mean the same thing or if they are different. Yeah, could be. I, I'm out of my depth on that. I've never actually like used a language that <laughs> does that. I am as well. So somebody's sure. going to correct this, <laughs> even with the you said like the binary decision thing, right? Like the the decision yeah. tree decision diagram. I was actually talking with the with Guillaume, the PhD student today about because today the way it works is that he gets Elixir code. So there is a programming language that introduces Cedus, yeah. types called Cedus, which is about working with XML. Yeah. And then we are starting to we have to at some point bring the implementation and it's implementing the camel. And we have to right. do the implementation to Elixir. And today I was talking to him, uh, trying to understand how complex in the implementation. And then he told me it's a binary decision diagram. So okay, I literally cool. heard the term <laughs> of how it works today morning. If we talked yesterday, <laughs> I would be completely clueless. So I, I don't know exactly. One of the things that I have on my mind regarding performance and all those things is that I'm really interested in two things at this point. I'm really interested in the two extremes, which is like lifting information from the code we have today. And again, like because this thing, we the user does not have to change the code, we have 100% control over how aggressive we want that to be and not that to be. So it's like we can start like adding features and we, we continue collecting like feedback from the community about build times and this kind of stuff because maybe it's good it never affects. And, that's, and we were talking about inference before. That's another reason why I am not super necessarily like, hey, inference, because I know inference is usually way more expensive, right? So I'm fine with saying, look, not necessarily worried about that. And then, so that's one of the extreme, like just trying to get information from what we have and that it's a place we have full control or you write the types for everything. And I assume that if we're writing the types for everything and then we are doing, we are handling the types locally, I am hoping that's going to be 
fast enough and uh, performance is not going to be a concern. Well, there's degrees of, of inference, right? So like there's, there's like global inference, which is like what like Rock and Elm do, where it's like, you know, it's the whole program. Like you don't have to put any annotations anywhere and yet it still knows all the types. But there's also sort of like uh, bounded inference where it's like, like I believe Sorbet does this uh, for Ruby, where it's like, okay, if you put a type annotation on your methods, like on, on, and you say like, okay, all these methods now have type annotations, it will do local type inference within each method, but it'll just assume that the annotation is correct. And so what that can mean is that uh, I think all of us who, who've used Java were always annoyed by like having to write out like, string x equals new string you know like you have to like put a type annotation on every single variable uh as opposed to like just being like no just say like x equals you know a string i I can tell it's a string just from looking at it look look it's a string (laughs) and so being able to say like okay i have annotated my methods which honestly like is considered kind of a best practice even in languages that do have inference but for absolutely everything like in rock and in elm i always choose to add an annotation to the top even though the language doesn't require me to but that means that you can, the inference can't sort of like uh, propagate as far. Like once it gets to that function boundary, that method boundary, then it's like, okay, well here, we just have this little like local system instead of the whole global system. And then globally, it's all just like fully annotated things. And so that can be like a, a way to make it so the inference is a lot cheaper, but while still making it so that you don't have to choose between either not having type checking between the variables inside the function or having to write type annotations for every single variable. So a thought. (laughs) Yeah, so I think, again, out of my depth, and I also think like a lot of it, it's local and global perhaps is the thing that makes the biggest impact, but also like which kind of data structures you have and also like which kind of polymorphisms, all this kind of stuff is going to impact the inference type. So it's really going to depend on like the, right? Like it's the whole package. And that's why, well, I mean, language design in a nutshell, right? It's kind of like all decisions, they are oh, yeah. somehow related and they rarely exist in a vacuum. But I have a question because one of the concerns I have with global inference, because global inference sounds... So let me tell an anecdote and you know better than me. Well, we'll see. It's, I, it's never safe uh, to assume. Okay, let me tell <laughs> it, which is... <laughs> Because I've been starting, I've been writing Rust for the first cool. time in the last seven days. Okay, so we there's this Polars library in, in Rust, which is like oh yeah, I saw you mentioning we this, are, yeah, in the uh, talk. I think that, yeah, yeah, we are exposing that through Elixir, and I want to, and I was working like on, on zero copy things, like, and when I was working with Rust, like. The compiler messages, they are just fantastic. Uh, like I even opened an issue in Elixir, like how we could improve one of, our, one of our error messages based on what I got from Rust. And a lot of things to, to like, but one of the things that I found very frustrating is that I could not refactor code. And I think it's because in Rust, not like I could refactor from time to time, but there are some occasions where I was like, oh, this code is shared. So the thing about uh, the code that I'm working on is that it's it's very trait heavy. And I think you cannot have like a tr- you cannot have like a trait inside a trait. You have to put a, a concrete type. In some cases, yeah. I, I know the general shape of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, right. So so I had some code and I was like, okay, it's duplicated between those things. So I'm going to extract a function for me yeah. to remove the duplication. And I could, maybe there is a way, but I could not figure out how to type that function because Rust wanted me to type that function. I think I have to type everything in Rust. So what I did is that I I just went with a macro instead (laughs) because the macro is going to get in line, right? And I I felt so dirty because it's like, it's like I was really fighting against like my instincts because it's like, look, refactoring code is a good thing. Right. But it's like the type system is not letting me refactor code. It's like this dilemma. And then it's like there's the joke, like the first rule of the macro club <laughs> yeah. is don't write macros. And now I'm like, I have to write macros to refactor code. And then I was like very conflicted. And I think it's one of the things like I know like Rust has inline functions, but if I could tell Rust, like, hey, this is a private function and you should inline it on its caller 
also during the type inference, so I don't have to put types on it. It's something that would solve the problem for me, which is related with like, what is the scope that you're working on, right? But the disadvantage is that if you're writing a lot of code like that, where you are like inlining the functions, right? Because you don't have types, when you get a type error, yeah. like good luck, like explaining why that type error is happening. So it's like all trade-offs, but it was one of the places where I felt like really like, Ugh. Yeah, so so based on my experience, this is a Rust thing and not a, like I, I've run into this too with Rust, but not with like Elm, for example. Right, because Elm is doing the global inference. So it's like, but then the concern with the global inference is like, once you get to, it's like, again, it's like, it's the trade-offs because once you have a really large project, if you're doing global inference, it's global inference. So unless you have a simple type system that is going to say, hey, it's global, but we don't care. It's really fast anyway. I worry that like a slightly more complex like type system with global inference, it's going to be like very, very slow. That's a great point. So a couple of thoughts here. So one is that I'd actually be really curious to do this. It would be kind of a pain, but <laughs> I, I'd be curious nonetheless. So in practice, if you have a large like Elm project, for example, like we have like half a million Elm lines of Elm code at work. In practice, culturally, everybody writes, you know, annotations on their like top level functions, right? Just all the time. If you're doing that, I actually don't know offhand if Elm's type checker does this, but like you can, you can use that to bound the inference and just say like, once you get to this point, okay, it's this annotation. And then like, you know, that's what it is from here on out. And if we ever have something that disagrees with that, okay, it's a type error. But also, I mean, even more generally than that. So Without getting into too much, well, I don't know, whatever, we can get a little in, a little bit into the weeds on this. So there's a couple of different like high level type checking strategies. One of them is, you know, like we were talking about the binary decision diagram, binary decision tree or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Binary something. We know it's binary. It's, it's a binary decision making. We don't know the details. <laughs> <laughs> but another one is... Um, type unification. And so type unification is different than subtyping. And it's got some interesting trade-offs. So one of the downsides of unification compared to subtyping is that from a teaching perspective, there are like, I would say like 95% of the time, subtyping and type unification give you the same answer and like kind of work the way you would expect. But there is a, a small niche of cases where if you don't realize that your language is using type unification, it might sometimes give you types that are surprising. So Elm uses type unification, Rock uses type unification, and I think that's correct, despite this downside. But like, there have been a couple of cases in Rock where, like we've already seen this happen, where like some beginners are like getting you know into the language and they run into something where like they'll put something in the REPL and they'll be like, I don't understand why it inferred this type for it. Like I would have th thought it was this, but it was actually this other thing. And if you're like, a compiler author and you're like oh that's because that's the answer that type unification would give that's definitely the correct answer this is not a bug but as a user it's just kind of like surprising and i i wish i had a good example off the top of my head but i, I can't think of one on the spot but, but basically the way that it works is essentially that like you start off with this big table and it's called a the data structure is called a union find data structure and it's almost like a bunch of symlinks so you'll say like either let's say I have a variable called X and we'll say, okay, X, I don't know what the type of X is yet. So I'm just going to say, I don't know what this thing's type is yet. It's an unbound type variable. And then I'm going to say Y. And it's like, okay, cool. I also don't know what Y's type is. And then we're going to, we're going to have something like Z equals X plus Y. And then I'm going to write down, okay, I don't know what the type of Z is, but I do know that it's like sort of a sim link to whatever X's type is and the sim link to whatever Y's type is because plus says like these have to both be the same type. And also there's another like sim link involved in there, which is like two number types. So it's like we, we know about like a couple of these constraints. Now, if you just stopped there, you could end up with this problem where as you keep building it up, so then you say like, oh, okay, A equals Z plus one and B equals A plus two. And you get this really, really long chain of like, you know, dependencies. And so if you're trying to like get the type of like D or something, which depends on A, which depends on Z, which depends on X, which depends on Y, then like anytime you learn something new about any of those types, like for example, let's say you learned that like all the way back at the top, X was an integer. And now you're like, okay, I need to propagate that information through all these other ones. 
that's really bad for performance because now, you know, anytime you reference like D, you have to like go walk this whole symlink chain all the way up to the top just to find out that D is an integer because B was an integer because A was an integer because Z was an integer because Y was an integer because X was an integer. What the union find data structure does is basically it creates these shortcuts. And because of the rules of type uh, unification, you're allowed to say, okay, we're not doing subtyping here. So if like Z has the same type as X, there's no possibility, or sorry, if uh, like D has the same type as X. Yeah, we're oh. saying like, you don't have to worry about yeah. any, like it's like they're the same. So I'm just gonna shortcut that whole chain and just say, the type of D is just symlink directly to the original X all the way at the top. And we know it's safe to do that because as we go through, we're saying like, yeah, that, that's just the rule is just like, you know, these things can be equal, but they can't be, there's no way to write down like this is a subtype of that. Because as soon as you say this is a subtype of that, then now you're like, you have to walk the whole chain every time. Yeah, which goes back like to which features you want, right? Because if you want like, so if you don't have subtyping, maybe global inference is going to be fine, especially right. if you can anchor it, right? But, but from what you're telling, as soon as you add subtyping, then things are going to go downhill really fast. Right. So this is why you need to use a totally different implementation strategy of like a decision tree. And I don't know anything about how that implementation works. I'm just familiar with the like the unification style. One of the benefits of the unification style, and, and this is something that we rely on in Rock to make the compiler fast, is that once you're done with all of that unification and everything, you actually know the final type of everything in like the whole program, which we use for code generation. So we actually keep that around. It's not just like we type check and then we report the errors and then we're like, okay, done, throw all that away. We keep that information and then use it when we're doing when we're generating the machine code. And again, if we were doing subtyping, that wouldn't work because the whole point of the subtyping approach is it's like, oh, yeah. well, yeah, this thing could be this or it could be this other thing. Like you'd have to do another extra pass afterwards just to like figure out what the types should be in the machine code. So because we're using unification, we don't have to do that and the compiler can be faster. So do you have something like, I think this is very interesting. I, I don't have a lot of knowledge in unification. So would you say there is no unification with subtyping or is it just like, it doesn't make sense to add because it's slow or it, they're just conflicting ideas? I don't know if I would go as far as to say that they're conflicting ideas more than just that they're like kind of different. Um, like they just have like different trade-offs. So I know that there's ways that you can combine them. Like one of the things that we have talked about doing is extremely localized subtyping just for the very specific case of a pattern match that gets more specific. So you have, for example, like you're pattern matching okay. on this, like, again, we call them tag unions, but it's like, uh, like, I guess in, in Elixir terms, this would be like, you have a set of like potential atoms that could be coming in, like you're pa pattern matching on like, okay, this could be like colon, I think it's the syntax is like colon foo. Is that right? In Elixir? Yeah. So you say like colon foo yeah. or like colon yeah, bar yeah. or colon baz, and maybe they have like a, you know, some, extra data and a tuple with them or whatever. So we would, in Rock, we would infer, okay, well, the type of this thing is like, it's either it's a foo or it's a bar or it's a baz. But let's say that I, I pattern match on these and then I have like an else branch. And then from that else branch, I call something else that's going to pattern match on like blah and, you know, sandwich or something like that. Well, so now I could say the, the type of that whole thing is like sandwich and blah and foo and bar and baz. But really, in that else branch, we've narrowed it down from the pattern match on the previous branches, and we know that it can't be foo or bar or baz anymore as of that one branch. So if, for example, I wanted to like call a helper function that only works on you know sandwich and blah, these other, these other two tags, it would be nice if the type checker was like aware of that distinction. And so if we just use unification, it doesn't know about that. It doesn't do any narrowing based on pattern matching. And so what we've been talking about is if we introduced, and that is basically like a subtyping type of analysis, if we did it and it was localized literally just to <laughs> pattern matching on tag unions, then like, okay, yes, technically it would be potentially able to like blow up in this way, but probably in practice, it just wouldn't. And that's actually something that like another micro tangent. So the unification style is like, uh, this is like for like Hindley Milner type inference. You may have heard that term. And yeah. one of the things that Hindley Milner actually relies on, and which is true of like Rock and Elm and Haskell, is this assumption that like the way that people are going to write code is like kind of normal, because actually there is the way that variables work, or like it's called like let bindings in, in this uh, typing discipline. 
it's actually like yeah. they are like susceptible to like blowups. Like if you just made like a Haskell program or an Elmer rock program, that's just like X equals five, Y equals six, Z equals. And you just went on and just like made this gigantic list of like local variables. It would actually get slow at some point, probably because like, it's actually like a nested data structure there. It's not just like a flat array of these things, but in practice, like nobody does that. You just like, you, you never write like a gigantic list of like local variables. It's always like either they're like globals or, you know, broken up into functions. But if you did that, it would be slow. It's really missing a powerful metaprogramming type system, uh, a powerful metaprogramming. So you can blow up the type system by just generating variables. But the point is that like what makes the type system useful is that it has these really great properties in terms of performance and in terms of like being able to infer everything and like principal type inference is like a thing that Elm and Rock have, which Haskell doesn't have, but which is really nice, which is basically it says that not only do we globally infer types, but also we always infer the most general type that we could, which is to say that it's not possible to add a type annotation that would make the code more flexible. You can only add a type annotation that makes it less flexible if you want to than what was inferred. Now you're telling those stories. It reminds me, I don't know if this is true, that when they added type classes to Haskell, they went a little bit overboard and they defined like type classes for like addition, for example. And then it turned out that because of type classes, I guess it makes sense that it makes it harder for it to solve because it can be anything that implements this type class. So basically what it made is that it made it hard for the unification because now there were like too many gaps or like places missing the information. And then they rolled back on some of the, on the usage of type classes. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know the history there with regards to like the interaction between type classes and type checking. But I do know that um, if you have higher kind of types, which is necessary for like Haskell's monad type class, probably most famously, higher kind of types are proven to be incompatible with general uh, principle decidable type inference, which basically means that if you if the language supports higher kind of types, it cannot any longer have the property of you're always able to successfully infer the most general type. There are some cases where in Haskell, for example, there's a compiler error, and Rust has this too, even though Rust doesn't have higher kind of types, but Rust has it for different reasons, where the compiler says, hey, I cannot figure out what the type of this is. I need you to add a type annotation. But like Elm and Rock just don't have any error message that says, please add a type annotation to this. Like it can always figure something out that's that's correct. And that is just like a downside of higher kind of types. Uh, also higher rank types have, or uh, arbitrary rank types have the same downside how frequently because there are those things like because when you're designing a programming language there are some stances yeah. that you take it's like look this they're, is, they're, they're not very often this is it's written in stone so i assume is that written in stone for you that you always want to get a principal typing i wouldn't go as far as to say that it's like written in stone and i will never give it up but i would say that i do value it highly like it's it's not something i would give up lightly but it is something that like if there were a sufficiently large benefit, which I absolutely do not think higher kind of types pass the, the bar for this, but if there were a sufficiently big benefit, then I would be open to it. But it would have to be a big benefit. <laughs> and like so far, I'm, I'm of the things that I've heard of, like higher kind of types, arbitrary rank types, and things like that, uh, I think dependent types probably also have that. None of those for me clear that bar. And, and mainly that's because, I mean, a lot of people like to talk about the benefits of those things and not the drawbacks. But like uh, when I look at the drawbacks, as I see them alongside the benefits, I don't think they justify their, their costs or their drawbacks. But that's a controversial take in the in the world of like statically typed functional programming languages. But but that is that is just my my view on that. Yeah, I was gonna like going back to the Rust example that you gave of like, you know, extracting things and being able to refactor them. This is actually one of the benefits that I see of like, decidable principle type inference is that even if you're going to choose to add type annotations to everything, if you want to like extract some code and like make a reusable function out of it, one of the nice things about the compiler being able to infer these types is that you can do that mechanically where not only can it extract the types for you, but it can generate a correct annotation for it as well and just tell you that. Right. So it means that even for you are performing global inference, you can cache all the intermediate results because you have principal types. It's global, but not really global, right? Because you can always infer the thing locally. Well, with the like the unification strategy, you know, like I was saying, like when you have this table, like 
global isn't really a big downside in the sense that like i mean it's like the whole point of it is that like you only end up with like one sim link hop every time anyway because as soon as you as soon as it would get longer you just say oh well i'll just point it to the thing that that was pointing to and so like even if you don't have the type annotations i kind of expect that i wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that like if you deleted every type annotation from our you know almost half a million lines of elm code base and then ran the type checker, I would expect it to be slower some amount, but I don't think it would be like catastrophically slower. I think it would be like noticeably, but but not like disastrously slower. That would be my prediction, but I'd actually be curious to run that experiment, but then you'd have to like write a script that like goes and strips out all the type annotations. And like, <laughs> I don't, I'm, not, I'm not that curious that I actually want to do that, but. <laughs> yeah, no, th- this was very enlightening because for me, it was like, what I had in my mind was like, global is bad. I think I hear like from Crystal, for example, like the type system takes yeah. a really long time. And for me, it was because of global, but it's clearly not global. There is something else that needs to be part of, of the thing that it makes the thing harder. And to. I'm really glad that you so, that you bring this up though, because like I think this just reinforces like the point that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, which is like specifics really matter. Like it's, it's not, you know, it's not just that like global is or is not bad. It really depends on what type checking strategy you're using. And like, if you're using type unification, it, I don't think it's that big of a difference, especially if you have like, you know, citable principle type inference and, you know, you're using the uni- union find data structure and all that a- as an aside. So Evan Chaplicki who made Elm, like I was talking to him about this and like, there's, you can find like high performance implementations of like this union find, you know, type unification type checking strategy but it's like pretty hard to find like specific code bases like now there's like elm and rock and like haskell's is like kind of a lot more complicated because of all the extra stuff that it does but like there's no like tutorial for like oh here's how to do it you know like i was like evan how did you do it and he's like well there's this one paper that i read like eight times because it's really long and really complicated and i did like everything that they said and like every everything other than this one paper which is called the essence of ML type inference, I want to say like the word essence is in there. And like everything else is just like talks about it, like from a theoretical perspective, but they don't tell you how to like actually make an implementation that runs fast in practice. <laughs> like, and it's, and there's all these like incredibly like the the theory like that I just described is like, oh, it's, it's pretty elegant and like nice and like conceptually cool. But then in practice to make it run fast, there's all these little fiddly bits that you can like really like easily like get like an off by one error with like these numbers that you have to like manually increment and decrement in all the right places to like cache things properly like the actual implementation is like not straightforward and like very error prone and like obnoxious but it's like worth it i think to get like the benefits but like i i don't want to you know delude anyone into thinking like oh you just do the just you know rub a little unification on it and everything's gonna be (laughs) everything's gonna be fine yeah, so this reminds me of the story of how I met the professor who, who is working with the set theoretic types. So like five years ago, I actually started implementing a type system just to see, like, I knew it would break a type system for Elixir where it, it could infer everything, but I wanted to see, like, how quickly, <laughs> sure. how soon it breaks, right? So I, I started implementing it, and that's when I learned about intersection types for the first time, uh, and I think it was, like, and I think the idea, those were old papers, but the idea is like, if you added intersection types to a hindler middle type system, you could get principal typings. There were like things related in this area that was really interesting, but you would lose other things like inference would kind of like, you get um, only some amount of inference and like depending on the rank. I don't remember the details anymore and it probably changed. But anyway, I've tried it, right? And then I found the places, I don't remember the details, but I found places, look, those are the challenges, those are the things we have to solve. So in like 2020 or 2019, there was a master master of science like uh, publication on adding a gradual type system, a paper on adding a gradual type oh, cool. system to Elixir. And then I read it and it, it was very nice. Uh, it was like the beginning of some exploration. And I've, then I went to the reference and there was a lot of uh, references to papers from Giuseppe Castagna, who is the professor. And then I would read those papers. And then the paper was like, in this paper, we are going to solve the problem of 
X, Y, and Z. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I, it, it, it sounds like the problem that I'm trying to find the answer for. And then it goes the introduction. You're like, all right, you have my I know, attention. I know where this is going. And then it starts like, <laughs> sec- right. And then it's like section two. It has some code samples. And then I'm like, this is exactly what I need. And then it's like section three, here's how we solve it. And here's the mathematical proof. And it never (laughs) comes back from the mathematical proof. And then I'm like, I have zero (laughs) idea, absolutely zero idea how to implement it. And in my case, I have like, there is no amount of times that I can read this paper that I'll know how to implement it. Probably unless I read like two books and 10 other papers before. So I just went like a honest email to the professor say, look, I've read this paper, really, really interesting, but honestly, I don't know how to implement it, right? And then he was very nice. I was like, I'm actually writing a paper for like exactly thinking about people who wants to implement type systems on exactly how to do that. So he sent me like a, a very practical paper, 60 lines long. And then we started talking and then we're like, we should figure out a way of working together. And after a bunch of paperwork, we, we were able to figure it out. So I'm very happy because I don't have to read those papers. Like <laughs> they are reading it and I'll help with the implementation. Uh, that that is such it. a familiar story to me. Like, yeah, it's like, I get this paper, I read the introduction. I'm like, I'm in. I'm so excited to read the rest of this. And then like the next paragraph after the introduction, I'm like, I'm lost. I have no idea what's going on. Like <laughs> I was so excited and now I'm just completely confused. It's almost like a different language like that the, they're written in. Like, And in some cases, like I remember like after one L meetup, this is like really early on when I was like just barely getting into working on rock. Evan was like helping me out after the meetup, like teaching me how to read the like typings uh, like n- notation for like the, the typing rules. I forget what they're called. Cause even like, I look at it and I'm like, there's a bunch of symbols here and I'm sure they mean something, but I don't know what they mean. And like, I'm like looking for a tutorial on this. Like I can't find anything that's like, doesn't rely on other terminology. I already don't know. I know there's like papers. We love conference. Like I could very easily go to a papers. I'm frustrated by conference. Like I, cause that's like my usual <laughs> experience with them. But like, but at the same time, I appreciate that. Like, Part of the reason that the papers are that way is because there's a very strong specialization in the academic world that's doing like super valuable work where it's like if there weren't people like, you know, proving things and like, you know, analyzing algorithms and like type checking systems and all these things at this level, you know that like because I mean. I also did, you know, like you did, I tried just like, let me see if I can implement a type checker from first principles, just based on the ideas. Let's see how it goes. It was a complete disaster. Like, and then I did it again. It was an even bigger disaster. Like if we just took the like industrial programmer approach of like, well, let's just like build a small thing and then iterate and let's, you know, it'll get us there. That doesn't work in some problem domains. If you're building a product for like end users or even a product for programmers, that totally can be a great approach. But like in some cases, it's just like, like, for example, the, the example that always comes to mind is like, imagine if someone was like, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? This is going to be a really nice user experience. I'm going to make a program that will detect whether or not another program halts. That's going to be super useful. And I'm just going to start small and I'm going to, you know, build a little, little small implementation. I'm going to iterate on it. And then eventually I'm going to get there. It's really useful for someone to have done the proof work to be like, you are not going to get there. <laughs> it's actually not possible to like, to do what you're trying to do. But like, Knowing that upfront, like what is and is not like provably possible is incredibly valuable, but it requires a completely different skill set than, than the one that I have. So like, there's a lot of, I think there's, I, I think of it as like somewhat of a symbiotic relationship when it's working well, where like in academia, they're using these like different set of tools and techniques to prove really useful properties and to discover and like research new, like fundamentally different ways of doing things that still have the properties that we want them to have. And then as I see it, like my half of the like symbiosis is being able to like actually productionalize those things and like take these really good ideas that researchers have spent a long time just proving that they work and have certain properties and turn that into something that's actually used by like hopefully a lot of people. And my experience is like usually when we ask like how to implement this or how to make this practical, the reaction is usually very positive, right? Because they want to see that happening as well, right? They want to see the thing, you know, getting more practical and going out to users. 
Yeah. And, and as we know, that's a lot of work. So it's not like, you know, it, it's like something they could just do easily either. Like both sides are a lot of work in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Wow. This is, this has been great. I really enjoyed like talking about all these things with you. It's, it's uh, <laughs> pretty rare to get to like talk to somebody who's like made a programming language that's loved by so many people. So thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I was actually, to be honest, I was not expecting to only talk about types, <laughs> but I think this is great. Uh, like great because it's uh, honestly a little bit out of my comfort zone and actually great because I was able to 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 learn a lot. It's kind of, I'm thinking now like in the irony of me going and giving a talk about types and saying that things are nuanced. <laughs> and then I have like this, I had like this, this preconception that global is bad, right? And it's like, no, it's nuanced too. So uh, I think it was like a, a very good lesson. And uh, it definitely opened up my mind to, to some ideas we, we, we can like, well, some doors I, I had closed for uh, and I should not. And, and some new doors. So I'm really thankful for Cool. For well, hey, I, I'm glad we both liked it. And, uh, yeah, and, and happy to do it again sometime. And maybe we can talk about <laughs> things other than types. <laughs> Something else. Yeah. I'm sure like we, we can pick another topic and go on totally. another hour. Like, uh, <laughs> just, yeah. All right. Thank you again so much for the invitation. <laughs>